Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Tamara Hajet. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's, and today is a very special episode because I'm joined today by a special co-host, Fiona Kopp from Impact Podcast. Hi, Fiona. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here and collaborate with Vowel Sounds. Well, welcome. Um, You and Shira and Christian reached out to us to collaborate. And when I saw that email, I was very, very excited. And Jason asked, who wants to take this on? I was like, me, me, I want to take this on. I was like, I want to, this is so, this sounds like an amazing collaboration. So tell us the story behind what made you think about sending us an email because I think it's a great idea. I think that's hilarious. They were like, me. <laughs> it, was, it was like, me, me. I don't know if I sent emojis. <laughs> I probably did because I love emojis. <laughs> yeah. But it was no, like, me, I were the same way. <laughs> I know we always like we like send out the opportunities in the pack chat, but it's like if no one grabs it, it's mine. <laughs> it's only mine. Um, so we're ha- so happy to be here. Basically, we started the Impact Podcast, the Patient Advisory Council Podcast. Um, I think in like February 2021, and so we have been sort of growing it slowly. We share a lot of patient experiences, patient perspectives on it, and more recently started collaborating. We're having special guests, particularly ICN providers on the episodes for special topics. But we noticed a lot of our listeners we think are pediatric IBD patients or young adults with IBD. So hopefully our experiences and stories resonate with them. But what we really want is to like expand that to really collaborate with providers so providers can get a better understanding of what is the patient experience. Yeah, absolutely. And also so we can have those multi-perspective conversations with both patient perspectives, provider perspectives, and really dig deeper that way. Um, so we're like, okay, let's reach out to Balance Hope because they're the NASCAN provider podcast. So great way Bridget. That's true. I agree. And I listened to a few of your episodes. They're great episodes. And I'm recommending your podcast to my patients. So hopefully everybody who listens to this will recommend Impact Podcast to their patients and the providers because it's important for the providers to listen to it as well. Thank you. Yeah. So today's topic, what are we talking about today, Fiona? We are talking about sort of, we can summarize it as what I wish you knew. Um, So what Patients wish providers knew about living with IBD and maybe a bit of what providers wish, wish patients knew or shared. Um, so really diving deeper into some of those difficult conversations. So we get into topics around growing up with IBD, um, what that experience is like, how it affects family and social relationships, body dysmorphia and mental health and so much more. Yeah. Um, and with three of us from the pack, we have lots of patient perspectives. And then we also ask you guys some questions about how you approach these topics in clinic. Um, so that's pretty neat to hear those perspectives because it can be difficult conversations to have, but also important. That's true. I agree. And a disclaimer, this episode is longer than an hour, but it's totally worth it. I mean, I was editing the episode and I'm like, I can't cut out anything because it's a great conversation, a lot of great topics, a lot of great learning experiences. 
And I recommend everybody listen to the end because it's a really, really good episode. Oh, and um, this episode, we recorded it a very long time ago. So anything you hear on this episode, it was recorded back in May before the new physical year. I think there's some comments where we say something about we're doing this next year or joining this next year. So this was recorded before the physical year. What else? Anything else we have to talk about? <laughs> Should we go on to the show? I think so. That is great. And should we say on to the show together? Peter and I try to do it <laughs> and it never works out. <laughs> so okay. on like on three. On, on to the to show. The show. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Hopefully it worked. It worked. <laughs> Welcome Fiona, Shira, and Christian to Bow Sounds. We are doing a joint podcast with ICM Podcast Impact and Bow Sounds Podcast. So we're excited for all of us to be here together. So welcome. Thank you. It's good to collaborate. Uh, we would like to start off with asking each one of you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you got involved with Improved Care Now. I can go first. Hi, everyone. I'm Fiona. I'm currently one of the co-chairs of communications for the Patient Advisory Council of Improved Care Now. I'm 21 and have been diagnosed with IBD ulcerative colitis since 2006. Um, so it's been a while. I joined the pack a few years ago, I think three, three and a half years ago. Um, after hearing about it from my doctor, I've always been super interested in like advocacy and connecting with other patients and sharing my story hopefully like providing somewhere else some light or hope in tough times because it can get rough. And yeah, as part of the co-chair communications, I organize our podcast, which we started, I think a little over a year ago called Impact and do some of the editing for it. Um, so that's been a lot of fun to really start a new project for the pack and see it all the way through into what it is now. It's still small. It's growing. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Um, my name is Shira. I'm 17 and I was diagnosed with UC four years ago. I'm currently one of the advocacy co-chairs. And so I got involved with ICN about a year and a half ago, both through social media and through my doctor. And I work on a lot of engagement as part of my role. So I've had a lot of fun helping people find podcasts that they're interested in and planning and everything that goes into it. So my name is Christian Lawson, and I have been a pattern of the pack for, oh my gosh, I don't even remember, 2014, 2015. I'm kind of aging out a little bit, but served in multiple roles within the pack, served as communications director for a little while, our communications co-chair, and then finally moved up to pack co-chair and just recently transitioned out of that role. Um, so I've had IBD since I was eight years old and now I'm 22 years old. It's so scary to say that. Um, <laughs> so scary to say that. And I love impacting patients and sharing my stories uh, that I've went through, especially um, minority patients, because I know a lot of times a lot of minorities are not well represented when it comes down to IBD or any other chronic illness. So um got an opportunity to share with the American Board of Pediatrics for their recent conference um, about my journey and my story. So I'm happy to be on the podcast today. Thank you all for um, sharing your stories with us. We appreciate it. 
It's very inspiring, all the great things that you do. That's amazing. That's great. You guys all talked about the pack that you're part of. I know your audience knows really well what the pack is and what they do, but for the Bow Sounds audience, it'd be great if you could share a little bit about what the ICN pack is about and what the goals are. So the ICN pack really is a patient group that works on resources for other IBD patients. So these are patient resources for patients made by patients. And in creating these resources, we collaborate with providers in the ICN community. So we hear about their perspectives and really combine these provider patient perspectives into these resources. And then the podcast really started just because we wanted to talk about IBD in a more casual setting to raise awareness and connect with more people as well. So that's a great segue because that was going to be my next question about the Impact Podcast, which is a great name, by the way. And, uh, you know, you started about a little over a year ago, I think you said. Tell us a little bit about what that's been like for you guys, what the reception's been and about the podcast itself. Like, you know, how often is it released and what do you guys do on the podcast? Sure. So I thought it was pretty cool starting it because I think Shira was on a pack call and it was just one of her like normal pack meetings. And Shira's like, let's do a podcast. And then it was like, okay, that's in communications. So um, the other communications co-chair, Vanessa and I, just sort of having no podcasting experience, figured out how to make this happen over the course of a couple of months and then started releasing it in, I think, February 2021, which was awesome. We tried to release bi-weekly. We've been on a several week hiatus from that. So you release every other week on Fridays. And the reception's been really good. It seems like a lot of patients listen to it um, as our main sort of like audience right now. So it's a bit on the younger side, but it's been really neat, especially we've had previous pack members on it, but now they're like doctors or IBD psychologists. So that's been really fun because they're excited to see like where the pack has gone with this and then also able to talk about what they do now, which is really awesome. I think those are some of my favorite episodes. I've listened to a lot of episodes and I thought they were really great. I like hearing the patient perspective side and I enjoyed your conversations and your jokes because there's a lot of jokes. The name of your podcast is very creative. The impact (laughs) where you have the pack name in there and you have very creative um, names of episodes. I love that. So good job. It's a really, really good podcast. So everybody, uh, there's a shout out. Just go listen to it. It's very fun. Thank you. Thank you for the plug. We love the plug. Also, IBD jokes top tier. So now do you want to introduce yourselves and tell us about how you got involved into pediatric PI and the advocacy space? Sure. So I'm Jason Silverman. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And in terms of how I got into pediatric GI, I kind of took a convoluted route. I was actually a dietitian before going back into medical school. Uh, I actually worked primarily in an adult GI unit in a hospital and really immediately fell in love with GI as a health area. It was obviously very nutritionally relevant, but I also just loved the kind of the underlying physiology, but also the breadth of the patient population. So in adult medicine, it's actually really um, fairly age-restricted. 
almost all folks that you deal with in the hospital are above a certain age, whereas in GI, it was everyone from 18 all the way up to 90 plus. And it was just great to see people you know, across a diverse age range. In medical school, I fell in love with pediatrics and tried to convince myself that I wanted a different path, but GI kept pulling me over. So I think for GI, I love the nutrition aspects, the physiology, the patient populations, the variety of um, ways in which we can provide benefit and care for the folks that we see. And I also am somebody that likes the opportunity to do procedures. And so it's a great mix of all of that. And then in terms of advocacy, I think anyone in, in pediatrics has at least some role in advocating for our patients because especially within medicine, pediatrics is often a little, not forgotten, but it's just smaller size-wise. And so I think it's kind of on all of us to use whatever platforms we have to raise awareness, raise the level of attention to the problems that our patients are dealing with to make sure that they rise above the noise and get seen by other people. Um, my name is Tamara Hajat, and I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's. I became a full, full doctor, like a, an attending. Two and a half years ago, I did my training at Connecticut Children's with a big IBD doctor. His name is Jeff Hines. He's one of the people that kind of is um, the grandfathers of IBD. So I had the privilege of learning about IBD under his care. I did some projects with him. So that was very cool. So I got very interested in IBD. I also have interest in treating patients with celiac disease and have interest in doing social media stuff like bowel sounds. What else? I love to advocate for my patients because I try to put myself in their situation and see where I can help them. And advocacy is one of the most important thing that every medical care provider should be involved in because that's the way we improve patients' lives and that's the way we uh, make changes in the medical system. And that's, that's the way that we help the patients and the people that we want to help. Oh, and I love to learn new things. Just a little thing about myself. So I took five level classes of improv. I'm dabbling in acting and I'm taking piano lessons. So maybe I will be uh, one of those people that is part doctor, part like Grey's Anatomy actor. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's tomorrow's subtle way of saying she's shooting for an EGOT. I don't know if you know what that is. You know, get each of the major award types in entertainment. She's heading there. So maybe you'll see me in a movie sometime. Maybe you'll see me, I don't know, on a show sometime. We'll see. You should make the like intro at your music. You know, like, the <laughs> podcast. Grey's Anatomy. I'm totally Grey's Anatomy oh. obsessed. Like, oh, yeah. It's, it, it's bad. Since before my IBD, I started watching it. Uh-huh. And then Chicago Man, The Good Doctor, like all of it. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship to medical shows because I look at it and I'm like, no, that's not where the appendix is. Appendix is on the other side. Why are you operating on the left side? Um, but one of my favorite medical shows is Scrubs. Have you watched it? I have not seen it. 
But I hear it's a bit, it's a bit of a dated reference now. Yeah. In, in all yeah. fairness. But I was going to say the same one because, in a lot of ways, it's totally ridiculous, but it's also the most accurate in some ways because they That's really what I hear. They make fun of a lot of very ingrained medical cultural things yeah. in a way that that's really funny, but it's also very true. Having gone, having been a fan of it before I got into medicine, um, rewatching some of the episodes, like, yep, I've been there. Whereas Grey's Anatomy, not so. No, not plastic. not very accurate. How? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Those six people do everything in that hospital. Yeah, like where's the nurse? <laughs> um. Okay, and then I would like to know what Fiona and Christian's favorite shows are, or books, or anything. I think my favorite TV show is Sherlock Holmes on BBC. Oh, yeah. I need to get into BBC. No, you can't say that. Now, now it's like, I got to choose something else. That's one of my legendary ones. I think the episode where he actually, Fiona, actually when he dropped off of the ceiling, or that, that rooftop, and how they <laughs> tricked it to make it all work out was so amazing because I watched the behind the scenes of everything and it was just like awesome. how did you not die <laughs> um, because they played it off so well I think one of my favorite shows and this is like a really good show to watch and it's not really for anybody who's 13 or young but I watched it when I was 13 and I shouldn't have but <laughs> Orange is the New Black Orange is the New Black there are lots of good character development in that show. Orange is the New Black, Stranger Things, all of those different shows where there's a lot of drama, but not only drama, but then you add sci-fi a little bit to it. Those things are one of my favorite shows. When I watch shows, because of the profession that I'm in career-wise, I watch it for not only just the cinematography, but I also watch it for the visual graphics and everything. So it's kind of hard because with all these recent movies and shows that have been coming out, it's, oh my gosh, I need to get my hands on to this, or I need to find the behind the scenes for all of this. But Stranger Things and Orange is New Black are probably my two favorite shows Along with Sherlock, but I let Fiona have Sherlock and I just keep orange just <laughs> black and stranger things. <laughs> I've never watched Sherlock. What is that? What is it about? Oh my gosh. Sherlock is about all of these different cases. So if you haven't watched like the old Sherlock Holmes, it's detective cases. And he's going through all these different cases to solve murders to solve crimes whoever did these different things now the bbc version if i remember correctly the uk one it's based out of uk all shot in the uk and he's going through all these different mysteries but there are certain moments where he will try to impose himself oh like one time he he had to kill himself but not actually kill himself how does that work <laughs> like i said he fell off of a roof oh and then in the next episode, some kind of way, I don't remember. It's been a while since I watched it. So Fiona might remember a little bit more details of it. But some kind of way in the next couple of episodes, we saw that he was okay. He kind of faked his death and kind of slowly unveiled it to some people that he wasn't really dead, if I remember correctly. That sounds very interesting. So before we go to our next question, I just want to ask one last question that's not on here. But I realized that when you introduced yourself, you talked about what you do in the pack, but you didn't say what you do in life. And I think that would be something really good for us to know. Uh, yes. So I, um, I work, uh, I'm currently a senior at Oakley University. 
um, studying broadcast journalism, um, but my profession is more film and television. So I dip and dabble in a little bit of everything from producing for live television to podcasting for work to um, to video editing, post-production, working with cameras. So I have a weird fascination for breaking things apart and figuring out how they all work. I love problem solving, so... It's just the perfect profession for me. And I work with a church and a television ministry currently at the moment. And I can't wait to transition off to do some greater and better things with probably a on-the-road production company in the future. You're looking for any actors. I did improv. <laughs> Listen, I... Hey, Tamara is going to be in touch after the show. I will. <laughs> I am probably going to be doing a couple short films and um, maybe starting to work on a documentary series. So if I need some actors for it, <laughs> I know who to call up to lead out and send an audition tape in. <laughs> My first audition. <laughs> if you come to Huntsville, we'll, we'll Huntsville, Alabama. We'll always be looking forward to having some actors for our short films here. That's pretty cool. Good to know. That's great. That's great. It sounds like you do a lot of great things. That's amazing. Fiona or Shira, do you want to cheer? I'll go. Um, I am currently a senior in high school. I cannot wait to be done, honestly. Senioritis, it's, it's a real thing. Um, next year, I'm going to Bates College, which most people have not heard of. Small liberal arts school in Maine. So very different from where I currently live in Northern California. But I'm very excited and I'm planning to study neuroscience. And do pre-med. Wow. I know. That's pretty awesome. First of all, Maine, amazing. If you love Yeah. I cannot wait. Neuroscience and Mm pre-med. You go. That's awesome. I know. I'm super excited. Congratulations. Thank you. That looks like you have a really great uh, road ahead of you. That's pretty awesome. And you know a couple of uh, physicians right now. So if you need any. Exactly. Yeah. Five years from now, we'll be calling you up. <laughs> I just graduated college this last weekend, so that was exciting. Um, oh thank you. I have a degree in engineering and German, and I'm going to be starting grad school in a PhD program for mechanical engineering in August. Wow. You said you're 22 years old? I am 21 right now. 21 and you're starting grad school? That is amazing. Thank you. And then a girl in the STEM field. More yeah. power to you. That's amazing. Thank you. Okay, so uh, thank you for sharing. We can go on to our questions right now. Today's episode is a collaborative episode between Bow Sounds and the Impact Podcast. And where we are as physicians and you as part of the ICN PAC team, we are going to ask questions to each other surrounding IBD care and hopefully shed some light on IBD care um, for our physicians and IBD patients. So uh, we'll take turns, like I said, asking the questions and uh, we're going to ask questions on four main categories. One is inclusive care in IBD. Um, The other one is body image in IBD. Third one is family and social life and growing up with IBD and becoming independent. So I'll start it off with my question. We kind of see patients in our clinic, and I always wonder, how do teens and preteens feel about being included in the management decision? Do they like it? 
Do they not like it? Do they prefer for us as physicians to talk to only parents and come up with a plan? Or uh, should we ask teens and preteens what they think about the plan? I personally direct my conversation to the parent and the patient and always make sure that the patient knows the plan and is okay with the plan and making sure that it's their body and they're the ones who are going through it. So they need to be okay with the plan. But from a patient perspective, what are your thoughts? Okay, I love talking about this. So I'm going to start. Um, so since I was diagnosed at 14, I have always been very involved. And about a year after I was diagnosed, my health started getting really complicated. So it honestly got to the point where my mom had trouble keeping up sometimes. And I was like, no, mom, that doctor does this. So I always prefer for my parents to like honestly not really be involved in the conversation and like sounds a little mean but they usually just sit there and they're like yeah I don't know like she knows what she's talking about anyway so I just go along with it so I wish that at the beginning my doctors were a little bit more attuned to that and like more pushed me to talk about the things that I was uncomfortable talking about Especially with IBD, there's always something that nobody wants to say, always, without fail. So I wish that they picked up on that and didn't, you know, ask me a question and I didn't answer. So they look at my mom and ask a question, like, my mom's not going to have a better answer. But I also know that sometimes people do not want to be involved at all. So I think it's hard because you never really know. And sometimes I'm not in the mood to be a patient and I go to a doctor's appointment and I'm like, I am going to answer all of your questions with one word and that's it. So they really have to like push me with more questions. But honestly, I feel like the best way to tell is to just ask at the beginning. There you go. Be like, how involved do you want to be? Yeah. That's a great point. Just asking and um, kind of getting that information and maybe asking every clinic appointment, how do you feel about the plan and seeing what their thought is about it? That was very insightful. I kind of disagree in a sense, just because I feel like as a patient in the preteen age, in the teenage age, that's a very critical age to really push the patient to understand really what their care is about and how to really explain what IB symptoms they're having and how they need to be taken care of. I remember when I was a teenager, because I was diagnosed at such a young, critical age, it was a lot easier for me because I had a couple years in my adolescent years, preteen years, to be able to say, okay, now I'm a teenager. Now I can tell you and have a conversation with you about how I feel. And it really helped me when I got into adult care because now I can explain my medical history because I remember and I took charge of having those conversations. Yes, my mom was there, but there were times where my mom would step out of the room to allow me to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with my doctor. And then she would come back into the room. So I, I feel like, yes, it might be a teenager preteen that has IBD and they're like skeptical of it. But the more you understand now about your IBD and how to manage it and how to treat it, the better your physician will respect you because they'll say, oh, wow, he or she has a good understanding of what they're going through and can explain it to anybody. It also allows you to be able to find somebody that will listen to you and be like, OK, you know what? Since you're not listening to me, then I need to find another doctor. I need to find somebody else that'll help me to be able to get the care that I actually need. Those are really good points. And I think there's kind of elements 
of both of your comments that are likely true for different people at different times of their life. One thing I wanted to know, so, you know, I, what I heard is really check in with your young patient at the beginning, maybe even at each visit, just to figure out where they're at in terms of how they're feeling about engaging and being involved in the discussion on that day or about their condition at that time. And also try and make the effort to see young people on their own, which kind of sets the stage where they, they kind of have to take ownership or at least maybe have the opportunity to share some things that they're not comfortable sharing in front of their, their parents. Other than kind of those check-in strategies, is there anything else that you would like the opportunity to tell the world's IBD doctors out there? Like, what is it that you wish your IBD doctors knew about involving young people in their own care or what you would want out of that? Yeah, I think I can add a little more or like a different perspective. Something that I've dealt with in this transition of going from very young when my parents took care of my care and did all the talking in my appointments to where I do the talking, but my mom's still there is sort of this balance of when there's a medical decision to be made. I am responsible for making that decision and I feel comfortable making that decision. But at the same time, maybe what I want is different than what I know my mom might want. And so navigating that relationship of like, I still trust my parents and I value what they want and what they think, but then it's hard to make an independent decision and feel fully like confident in my own decision. Um, and I think that's a really huge learning process that isn't really talked about in the transition um, of care or like becoming more independent and involved in your own care. I think it would be neat if providers talked about that more, or that was one of the things providers talked about in one-on-ones with patients. So kind of having that skill set or backup about navigating that ability to have permission to make your own decisions, even if it's not what your parents would want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I always make it a point to tell my patients that, oh, I really like that you're advocating for yourself. And if they say, I honestly don't like this medicine, or I honestly uh, don't want to do this. And I ask them why and ask them what their thought process and talk to them through it. And I like it when my patients say, can, can we please maybe wait a little bit to do this or just start saying their opinions because it means that they understand their disease and they're advocating for themselves. So that's good. Yeah, and I think that was such a good point. And I totally noticed that, especially even if my mom and I have the same goal or are getting to the same place, I noticed that I often have very different questions and concerns about treatments or procedures than she does. So I think having the opportunity to ask the questions without feeling I have my mom looking over my shoulder, waiting for me to say something specific is super important. And I also think that setting kind of a precedent of advocating for yourself from the beginning is really important. And it partly does come from the provider. I think seeing providers who are active in advocacy for you and for other people and just in general made me feel like, oh, they advocate for their patients and for better treatment. So I can do that for myself. And I learned that like I can have standards for my symptoms and how I feel that might be different than them. It was really hard for me to be like, oh, like I'm surviving, but I don't feel great. And I, I want to do something about it, but I feel like I shouldn't ask for too much. And then I was like, no, I'm the patient. This is my life. And like, I deserve to feel better. So I should be able to say something about it. Those kinds of conversations within the family and within your peer support group are really important to, to make sure that you feel like you, you are able to give voice to what you're feeling. 
talking about those sort of like relationships between the patient and family and how that works in IBD care, do you as physicians try to envision yourself as an IBD patient or family member ever? And like, what does that look like to you as well as like, how do you start to like understand your patients beyond their IBD to more fully incorporate who they are as an entire person into their care and medical decisions? That's a great question. And uh, I'll actually just State for the record, here in our center, I'm not one of the physicians that typically does outpatient management for our IBD population, although I definitely look after uh, young people when they come into a hospital. But I, I do also look after the cystic fibrosis clinic, and it's another patient population that has chronic health challenges and needs to navigate lots of physician visits and medications and things like that. And I, and I definitely always try and imagine when I'm about to recommend something or suggest something or have a conversation about medication adherence or something like that. I always try and say, okay, you know, what are things actually like for this family in this family's home? What's going on? And try and get a sense of the dynamic between the child and their parents maybe the siblings, um, and and just try and get an understanding of kind of a lay of the land to, to understand, but also having giving people a bit of grace and understanding that navigating all of this is is really hard. And so having the, the kind of patience to take a step back and go at the pace that the family needs to go through things. But yeah, I think it's really important to not look at the individual kind of quote unquote patient in front of you, but especially in pediatrics, we're sort of trained to look at the sort of the, almost like the family unit as a whole and try and work with them as a group, understanding who is the most impacted, but everyone's impacted in different ways. Mm, that's, a, that's a really deep response. And uh, I thank both of you guys, both of the doctors that are on the podcast today for really looking at the family as a whole, because it kind of segues way into our next question that we have for you guys. And that question is, as IB doctors choosing a healthcare plan for your patients, how do you consider the other identities in which the patient has, whether it be race, religion, ethnicity, sexuality. And in considering all of those identities, how do you make treatment decisions for them as well? I love this question because it's a very important question. And I think every physician should keep that in mind when they're making their decision about medical therapy for their patients. Because studies show that racial and ethnic disparities have been one of the factors to influence treatment in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And the things that make racial and ethnic disparities an influence is that there's been shown that there's some phenotypical difference, meaning that there's difference in genetics, there's difference in disease distribution, there's difference in location, responses to medications in different racial and ethnic groups. There's also environmental difference. It's been shown in some studies that people who immigrated from a country that has low IBD prevalence to a higher IBD prevalence, that these patients are more likely to develop IBD because maybe the difference in like the westernized diet. So that's one of the things that we should keep in mind. But also another thing is difference in adherence or difference in access to medical care, difference in insurance coverage, difference in delayed diagnosis. All of that is really important to know about your patient. And if you don't know that, and if you don't keep that in mind, that might influence your decision as a physician on how to care for your patient. 
So I love this question because I think we need more studies. We need to diversify our studies. We need the ethnicities and the race in our studies more diverse so it can reflect the whole patient population, not one race or one ethnic group. Completely agree with what Tamara said. And I think in addition to issues around race and religion and ethnic background, it's also really important. And I think this is something that is getting more airtime and more discussion is paying a little more attention to also issues around sexuality and gender identity. And those are factors that I don't think have been historically accounted for as well. And I think people are at risk of maybe falling back on stereotypes and having a bit more of a broader scope and understanding how to navigate things when the patient may not identify the way you're assuming that they do. And I completely agree with that. Raising awareness about sexuality and identity is really important. And that's what we're trying to do in NASPGAN and on Bowel Sounds, where we have a dedicated episode where it talks about how to talk to patients about that, how to respect their sexuality, how to respect and talk to them about their pronouns, how to navigate if the patient has a pronoun and parents are not on board with that. And this is an important topic. And I think that it's really important for all the physicians to know about this and all the physicians to respect it and all of the physicians to educate themselves about it. Thank you guys for both of your responses to just hear how you guys are both dedicated to that. It just gives me and so many other patients, Fiona, Shira, gives us so much inspiration to know that IBD healthcare is going in a direction that's great. Because when I was diagnosed with IBD, I never really thought that I would even see the day that we would have conversations about ethnicities or different sexualities or all of these different factors that come into play when it comes down to treating IBD patients. To hear the work that is going on and to hear how physicians like you are willing to get educated about it, I think as patients, that just reassures us that there's a better tomorrow for IBD healthcare. And it starts with you guys and not only just you, but all the thousands of healthcare providers who work with IBD patients. And that's why we're here today to raise awareness for all of this. For sure. And I was just going to say in the work that you guys are doing to make sure that our patients advocate for themselves and make sure that we are all doing right by them and raising our game. Maybe this is a good time to pivot a little bit from issues of identity to issues of self-image in different ways. And so one thing that we definitely know is that IBD sometimes leads to weight loss, malnutrition. And as physicians and our multidisciplinary team, dietitians, nurses, we might recommend nutritional supplements. Sometimes we start our patients on steroids. And sometimes we have this issue where we almost or have a yo-yo in weight where our young people go through periods of weight loss and then maybe rapid weight regain because of you know well-intentioned therapies to look after their disease and their health. Do you think that may lead to issues around disordered eating or alterations in body image for young people? I can speak from a bit of personal experience as well as just like talking to other PAC members. So like in general, I think it's a really common experience and something that we've discussed on our podcast a few times, like body image and disordered eating with IBG. And for me personally, I think it's just the rapid change of you're so used to being it one way and then it can change your like weight can change so quickly that even though it's like healthy to finally be gaining weight and growing properly, you just see yourself differently and you're so used to being maybe the smallest person in your class 
and now you're no longer that size. And that's totally fine and totally good because you want to be growing normally, but it can change how you think and just like what you're used to super quickly. But then at the same time, there's that worry of what if I get sick again and lose a bunch of weight? So it's it's very complicated and very confusing, I guess is what it comes down to as an individual. And then at the same time, I think before I was diagnosed with IBD, eating caused a lot of pain and I didn't really enjoy it, but I was so young at the time that I didn't make that connection. So then when eating and food finally becomes enjoyable, it's complicated because it's just suddenly changing. But then there's certain foods that you're like, oh, these are my only safe foods. So you only stick to these and it just continues to limit the food that you want to eat. And it's hard to expand out from that even when you're feeling better just because of built-in fear of food from when you were sick, even if it's not obvious, it's just like subconscious. Especially, I think, at a young age, growing up with IBD, you don't realize what's happening (laughs) or that it's happening always, if that makes sense. Yeah, Shira and Mark, you're stuff to add about your experience as well. Basically, everything you said. I totally struggled with the same thing as well. And especially the disordered eating, like I was not diagnosed until I was 14, but I had GI issues my entire life. And so there have always been things that I'm like, they made me sick once and then I never wanted to eat it again. And then when I started getting sicker and sicker, I got scared of eating. And I basically would be like, I'm not going to eat for the first half of the day because I want to go to school and I don't want to be in a ton of pain or running to the bathroom. So I'm just not going to eat. And the hardest part was that it worked and it was the only way that I could try to live my life. But then I developed a really unhealthy mentality around food because I was like, I only eat when it's necessary or I eat as little as possible or I only eat very specific things. And so when I finally was on a good regimen, it was so difficult to adjust back to being like, okay, now I have to actually eat like a normal eating schedule and I should eat more than just these five things. And learning which foods used to make me really sick, but I can eat them now was so difficult because I was so scared of getting sick if it turned out that I still couldn't eat them. But I was like, I don't want to try. I don't want any part of it. So yeah, I think they're both really big challenges for IBD patients. For sure. I think that's a really good point about not just how you see yourself, but also that really important kind of relationship with food and those habits and those ingrained responses that develop over time. And I would like to add, sometimes the treatment options that we do have to try as patients are very hard to deal with when it comes down to body image. I remember being on EEN for a bit. And while I was on EEN for a bit, just the social aspects alone to be able to explain why I had an NG2 down my nose was really difficult. But not only just explaining that, but the emotional health that came with the fact that I had to remember Like they said, certain things I could eat and then not only the things that I could eat, but also being able to stick within that calorie intake orally per day that I had. So between those areas, it just made it very hard for me. Um, Walking into high school at 66 pounds and nobody wants to see somebody who's 66 pounds walking into high school. Nobody wants to really fathom that because it's like, is the parent neglecting the child? Um, and why is the parent neglecting the child? Because there's no way, especially being a minority, looking the way that I do, it, it just raises a lot of questions. So it, it's difficult. 
the body image is difficult, not only for the patient, but for the family as well. Because it's like, why does my sister look like this? Why does my brother look like this? And it's a really hard time to really swallow that pill and be okay with accepting this and reminding myself that I am beautiful despite of IBD, despite of all the different treatments that I have to go through. This is valuable information as a physician. It's very good to know because what we do is we see you in clinic. We talk to you about your weight. We look at your growth chart. We say, oh, you've gained weight. You lost weight. Maybe you should eat more. Maybe you should take supplements. So I guess that brings me to the next question. What do you wish your physician knew about or knows about right now? When we were encouraging you to eat more, drink more supplements, when we start you on your steroids and say, oh, you're going to gain some weight on this, would it be better to kind of uh, refer you immediately to a dietitian so uh, they can work with you on the food intake and a specific diet? Or would it be helpful to refer you to a psychologist in the beginning so you can talk about body image and address that from the beginning? Or is there something, other resources that you think physicians should know about where you think it would be very helpful in addressing any body image issues or disordered eating? I think one of the things that I would say is if there is going to be a change in treatment, say that the patient is going to be on steroids or EN, that they do sit down with a dietitian and a psychologist as well, if it is available. Because I believe that being able to provide the patient with a forewarning of what is to come is something that is very impactful. I remember the first time that I was put on steroids. Me and my family, we didn't know anything about steroids. So you hear about steroids being used in sports, but you never really hear about it being used in a medical setting, like with a chronic illness like IBD. And so with our first interaction with it, I was eating everything. Like every 30 minutes I was eating. And my mom couldn't understand this because she's like, child, I just fed you. So why are you eating more food? Like, why keep on cooking? So it wasn't until she got up at two o'clock in the morning and saw me cooking on the stove that she realized that this is actually an actual issue that my son has to face because he's on a medication that causes him to eat so much. So at that period of time, we were able to plan more. I was able to walk around with snacks to provide me with the nutrition that I need throughout the whole course of the day. But having those care providers to be able to tell me that would have really helped me because it wouldn't have been like, oh, what's going on with Christian? Like, why is he every 30 minutes eating? How old were you when you were cooking? I was eight. And oh, I'm, wow. I'm telling you, like, I didn't know anything that I was making. And there were mornings where I just got up and just made something work um, just because I was hungry. And there was only certain things in the fridge. And at that time period with steroids, you got to get something quick. You can't keep on waiting because the longer you wait, it's going to get you more anxious, going to get you more upset that you're not actually physically eating something. This is good to know from your perspective, what changes it makes at home and uh, teaching our families more about what to expect with steroids. So that's really important. I was the same way as Christian and I am every time I want steroids, I'm the same way. And I totally wish that number one, I wish that we had a better plan of you're going to go on steroids and you're going to stop them after this amount of time. Because I ended up on steroids for like four months and then, okay, we're going to taper and then you get worse and you go back up. And at that point, I was like, I cannot do this anymore. Like not only the appetite, but the anxiety and the lack of sleep. 
I was not prepared for. And so a few months in, I was like, I need sleep and I cannot continue this. And this is driving me crazy. And I really want to feel better. But this is not the way I'm not feeling better like this. And I didn't feel like there was any other option. Because at the time, it was just like, okay, take steroids. And then my mom was super worried about me because my mom has Crohn's as well. And she was diagnosed in like the mid or late 80s when steroids were all you did. And so she took them for a really long time. And so when she started to see those changes in me, she was really concerned because she was like, oh my God, this is too much for my kid. She cannot continue to be on steroids. And so I think planning at the beginning is so important and being like, okay, like you need to be prepared because it might be really awful for a time, but it is going to end instead of making it feel like this everlasting loop can be so helpful. I definitely agree with what Sharon Fishman said. And I think something to think about, like more generally, just with going back a little bit in our discussion to like how common body image issues and disordered eating are in IBD patients, I think it would be helpful to have providers be more upfront and discuss that. It's obviously a touchy subject, but I think it would honestly be helpful for providers to bring it up, even if it's in addition to an IBD psychologist or a dietitian, because having your GI like themselves sort of recognize that and acknowledge that I think can be super powerful beyond talking to an IBD psychologist about it because then it's not just limiting to it to like the mental aspect it's like oh my GI is actually recognizing that this is extremely valid and something that happens yeah I guess as physicians what strategies do you use or like how do you help your patients open up about that in clinic that's a good question I definitely think about it And I definitely make a point to bring it up in clinic. I don't bring it up early in the disease course because all what everybody's thinking about is I want to get better. And usually patients present with some significant weight loss. So I do tell them what to expect with medical therapy. I'd say these are the side effects of steroids. And one of them is that you're going to notice that you're eating much more, you're gravitating towards more sugary and salty foods, and you're going to see some weight gain. But once we take you off of the steroids, then that kind of weight gain, you might notice some weight loss as we stop the steroids. And I make it a point to say that my goal for you is to get the nutrition required for your body to be able to heal. So I make it more about nutrition and about protein and vitamin intake and more about kind of nutrition than body image or about weight gain and weight loss. When I ask them to drink more supplements, I say these supplements have the protein, the vitamins, the energy that you need for your colon to build itself back up and to heal. So I make it more about their health and I make it more about the recovery than about the weight. And then once we get through that phase of we're back to recovering, we're into kind of what we call clinical remission where you don't have any symptoms, then I notice a weight trend. And if they're able to maintain their weight on where they're recovering pretty well, then I don't tend to bring it up. But if I see a a weight going up and down, Then I talk to them and I say, I've noticed that you've had some changes in your weight. If they've lost 
a lot of weight. Is this more related to you not feeling well? Or is this more related to you not being able to maintain your nutrition? Are you more active? Are you more eating healthier? And I try to see what changes they've been doing to make the changes on the weight. And if it's more, oh, I'm more active, I'm more healthy, I'm, I'm feeling better, then my last question would be, do you have any concerns about body image and you have what we call body dysmorphia. And if they're hesitant or if they say yes, I make it a point to say, I'd like to address this as soon as possible. Because when we try to encourage our patients to make a change on their diet, there might be a way where they're trying to control their diets because they want to feel good. And when they want to feel good, that control can change to a disordered eating or something we call ARFID, and then that can transition to body dysmorphia. So I make it more about the IBD um, because sometimes you want to feel better. It changes your relationship with food. And I want to make sure that you have a healthy relationship with food. And I make it more about the body, the recovery, and the relationship of food and telling them that this is something that happens and I want to work with you through this and give you the, the good resources to make you feel better. And that's kind of the way that I would approach it. And I know every physician has their different ways, but I think we all make sure that we're talking about health and nutrition. I really like how you frame that of sort of the nutrition to support your body and help your body heal. I think that's a really helpful way of looking at that, especially for patients when it can feel out of control, like all these medical treatments changing really fast and et cetera. So I think that's a great frame to put it in. We'd like to move on a little bit and talk a little bit about how having IBD affects family and social life. And as physicians, we only see our young patients with IBD in clinic, and we don't know necessarily on a personal level how IBD affects each child's family dynamics and their social life. Can you give us some insight into that from your experience? I think in terms of social life, unfortunately, me and every other person I've talked to has lost friends because of IVD. And I definitely went through that around my diagnosis. I was starting freshman year. And so I was going to a high school where I knew three people total. And so I already was splitting off from my friends. But then I noticed that I couldn't connect with my middle school friend in the same way, especially when I was really sick. I felt like my whole life was dedicated to making it through the school day, making it home, trying to just rest up enough to make it through whatever activities I had to do, go to the doctor, do it all again. And so my social life pretty much was non-existent at the beginning. And I think that's a really common experience. I feel like partly the problems that I had in my life were just different from other people. And I also think the way that I spent a lot of my time changed because even when I wasn't super sick, I still found myself going to the doctor or going to like psychology visits. I've been to so many of those. And it really affected my family as well. I know you mentioned that in the question. So my mom also has IBD. So it wasn't a new disease for us, but my journey has been completely different from hers. And she was pretty stable throughout most of my childhood until around when I was diagnosed. And so it really became IBD was like another member of the family. And 
that was something that we all had to adjust to because I didn't want to feel like the way that everybody looked at me was in the context of my IBD. And I know that my family was just worried about me, but I also didn't want to be talking about it all the time. And I don't like to talk about how I feel because a lot of times I get really frustrated and I'm like, you can't do anything about it. So why am I going to try to dwell on it and describe it to you? And for my family also, IBD just causes a really big time burden and financial burden. And luckily we were in the place where we could handle that. But my mom basically became my taxi driver and my appointment buddy. And we were going to appointments so often. And then she was going to her own appointments. And then when I started treatment, one of the hardest things was steroids for sure. I was on mid to high dose steroids for a long time, months and months. And the way that I interacted with my family was completely different because the mood side effects just hit me so hard. And so I felt like so much time I was in my brain trying to be like, okay, just take a deep breath. Just don't say anything if you're feeling frustrated. Just get through the conversation. And I think my family really felt that too. And they really tried to not set me off. And so it really was like IBD was the member of the family that everybody is trying to accommodate. And it was a really difficult adjustment for us. That's a very interesting insight that IBD becomes a member of the family. And it's very interesting because we as physicians see you for half an hour or an hour and then don't know what goes on in the home. So this is very enlightening. Looking back, is there anything you think might have been helpful for your doctor, your physician, your psychologist when they first diagnose you with IBD in terms of how to help you address with your family life, your social life, would referring you to a social worker or a psychologist early on would be helpful, um, help you find kind of local or national support or a supporting system. Can you tell us what we can do to improve as physicians? At the beginning, I wish that I was referred to the psychosocial support a lot earlier on. I didn't meet the IBD psychologist until almost a year in and by that point, I was like, this is helpful, but it's a little too late. And the beginning of my diagnosis was when I really needed help. And I think that if I had more support, even accepting my diagnosis by myself, it would have been a lot easier to interact with my family and kind of support my family through it. I think it was really difficult for my parents because my mom probably felt like she gave me IBD and it was all, all her fault. And I think that Having somebody on my team to recognize that and not just on her team would have been super helpful because I still worry about that. And I don't want her to feel that because I don't feel any resentment toward her. Like, I'm like, it is what it is. It happened. But yeah, I think if we had someone in the beginning to even just say, like, I recognize this is a challenge and it's going to take a while to adjust, would have felt a lot more normal and not just like this awkward thing that no one really wants to confront or no one knows how to talk about. Yeah, and that's very helpful. And this is what the PAC is doing, right? You're providing support for patients that are newly diagnosed, you're all going through the same thing. Is that right? So you're trying to say, hey, I understand what you feel. And I don't want to speak honestly on your behalf because I am a physician. I'm not part of the PAC team. From what I see, it is that you're doing something that you didn't have and you're trying to provide support for 
patients that have IBD. Exactly. I think a lot of what we do, honestly, is like we're creating these resources that we wish we had or we see could help other people. And in a way, what that does is it also really validates what somebody else is going through. You're like, I'm not alone in this. Okay, this is a normal experience of having IBD. So I think an important part of it is normalizing all those experiences and feelings and emotions that can make IBD isolating when you don't know that or don't have that validation. I guess since Shears described a little bit about like her journey and how relationships and social and family life have been affected as physicians, what do you see in clinic about patient social life and friendships? What of that is realizable to you in a clinic visit? And what sort of strategies or what do you talk to patients about like as options to ease that family burden or sibling relationships? And does that discussion look different if multiple members of the family have IBD? That's a good question. I try to make my clinic visit kind of a complete discussion, not just about GI symptoms, but also about mental health and also about social situation. And I try to uh, read the room, or at least as physicians, we try to read a room and see if we notice that a social situation is affecting our patient, then we address it ahead of time or at the beginning of the visit. If uh, the patient didn't bring it up, then at the end, we ask about these situations. But things we know as physicians, how IBD can affect the family is social life. So school you're needing to leave school a lot for maybe infusions, for clinic visits. So we make sure that the school is understanding of this. Uh, so we provide 504 plans. We provide as many notes as we can. And I always tell my patients that I want to set you up for success. And if you need a little bit of additional time for schoolwork or for an exam or anything like that, then I want to make sure that everybody's understanding of this. The other thing is we know that this provides a lot of financial burden on the family as well. So we try to connect you with all of our resources that are available to you that might help you with uh, any financial burden that you might have. And a lot of times families don't know that or they are hesitant to say, uh, this is causing a financial burden on my family uh, because they don't want to seem like they are not wanting to pay for the treatments. But I tell my families ahead of time, I say, this is a lot of financial burden on you. And I want you to be open and honest with me because I can provide you with the resources. I can connect you with our social worker. I could connect you with our financial advisor. We can figure things out. And there's a lot of resources that we can provide you that might help with your financial burden. So I want you to let me know. The third thing is that I always let my patients know the resources that are are available. And I say, although you might not be ready for a psychologist right now, I do want to let you know that we have a psychologist, we have a peer-to-peer -peer group, and I make it a point to tell patients what our resources are because it is very important to know that although you might not need it right now, you might need it down the road. And it is important for you to know that these are the resources. And then I always ask about family members that have IBD. And I say, how's your mom doing? How's your sister doing? How is your father, your grandma doing? And then I let them express or tell me how they're doing. If they're not doing well, then I kind of dig in and see if there's something I can do to help the family situation. Now, in terms of peers, I always make it known to my patients that there's a lot of people that have IBD. And although not a lot of people may 
say this and are not ready to say that they have IBD, but within your class, within your school, there's a lot of people that might have this. So you're not alone. And we, we diagnose a lot of patients with IBD. So there are some resources like the PAC, and that's the whole point of this podcast is we want to make this available to our physicians to say, hey, uh, there's this amazing ICN team that are teenagers and young adults that have IBD and there's resources. There's this podcast that you can listen to and there's these resources. So this is kind of how I and I think a lot of physicians try to conduct clinic visit while addressing social life and siblings and family life. Yeah, it's like the whole idea of taking into account the entire patient and not just here's the medical view, but what else does that affect in their life? I also think that IBD is not the most fun thing to talk about. And for teenagers especially, it's so hard to be open and upfront about how it actually affects you. And I think like learning that we don't owe anybody an explanation is so empowering. And it really made me a lot more comfortable talking about it on my own because I didn't feel like I had this checklist that I had to achieve with every single person. And I could talk about half of it and like they could ask the question and I'd be like, oh, I don't want to talk about that right now. And then be like, okay, that's fine. And so I think like really taking ownership of what you want to tell people is super important. And it really made it a lot easier for me to deal with it. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think it's going to vary by patient of like what they're comfortable answering and what they're comfortable talking about. But I think, especially if you're a close friend of someone, like having that discussion with your friend of like, what do you want to talk about? Do you want me to ask you questions? Do you want like learning what the patient wants? Um, and that might change over time and being okay with that, I think is really important as a friendship. Yeah. One of my patients was living in a dorm and had uh, a special situation. And my recommendation was tell your dorm roommate that there's some things that I'm going through that you might not understand, but I appreciate your patience. And I made it clear that you share what you're comfortable with. The only thing that you need to say is that I have some a medical condition and there's some things that you might not understand. And if you're comfortable with him or her asking, that should be okay. But if not, then just leave it at that. Yeah, that's a really good point, both of you. Um, maybe we'll just move on because we, we've been talking about family and social life. And obviously that's a big part of where people at the time when they're diagnosed, but it's also a big part about kind of just growing up in general and being a young person and navigating teenage years and all of that. So different people deal with different diagnoses differently, but Knowing that inflammatory bowel disease is a long-term diagnosis, can you give us some insight into how can inflammatory bowel disease can affect a child or a teenager growing up? You've talked a little bit about this in terms of how it affected your direct social relationships, your friends, but do you feel like young people with inflammatory bowel disease feel excluded? Can you talk about how it affects things like schoolwork and mental health? One thing that's as maybe unique to a pediatric IBD experience mm -hmm. is 
maybe when you're diagnosed, you're not going to fully understand what IBD is, especially if you're really young. You might not be like learning that. So then it's something that you grow up with and learn about as you get older and more mature and have the ability to understand what's really going on. That was something that I experienced definitely since I was diagnosed at age five. So I'm sure I couldn't comprehend a lot of it right then. So there's a lot that goes into that sort of mentally processing. Oh, this is going to affect or be part of the rest of my life. And that's interesting because it's not like you had this diagnosis moment and everything changed then. It was like you figured this out as time went along in a way. And that process can be difficult because there's almost like this expectation that you realized that all at diagnosis. And then it, in a way, felt like there wasn't support for me to talk about that later because it was like, oh, I should be used to this by now. But it's like, I'm now a teenager realizing maybe more of the repercussions of this and what this actually means. So that was something that was hard for me. And then I guess as part of it affecting schoolwork, that can also really just change over time and look very different at different points in your journey, which it has for me. From like just missing school for appointments and stuff to honestly being I, there was one point in high school I remember that I was having a hard time and I didn't really know what was going on but I would go to school come home eat dinner fall asleep I have no idea how I actually did my homework during this time I don't remember because I wasn't doing that at night like normal and that can make school really hard and really discouraging honestly because it's like you want to be able to do schoolwork at your normal level and sometimes you can sometimes you feel like it's completely out of control and it might be your IBD, it might be something else, but it, like it's hard to navigate that, I guess. So definitely using the resources available has made a huge difference. Um, and honestly, talking to my doctor and being like, this is what's happening, because initially it didn't affect school in the same way that it does now for me. So having those conversations as things change over time, I think is really important. That was a really interesting point that you raised, Fiona. And I don't think that we as physicians necessarily consider that, that that understanding of your own condition evolves over time. And so you almost have to revisit or recheck in with new questions you have about the repercussions of your condition or your understanding of your condition as time goes on and have almost that initial conversation again with you as an older person with more capability to understand what's going on and realize some of those broader implications. So I think that's a really important point. Yeah, exactly. Because I think often at the beginning, it's done more for the parents, especially if the child is young, but then the child misses out on that and later maybe needs that a formal education discussion around that to feel comfortable. I think this evolution, like no matter the age of the kid is something that's so underrecognized because I was diagnosed older. And so I had that pivotal moment of, oh my gosh, this is like a life-changing diagnosis. But even for me, my contextualization of my own disease changed a lot several years into it. And as my own medical history evolved and um, things with that changed, like I, I have IBD-associated arthritis. And when I was diagnosed, I was like, hold on, back up. How did this happen? Nobody told me this was a possibility. And that was when I started to really grasp the seriousness of my IBD and really realize like, wow, this could get really bad really fast. And I did not know that. I was not prepared for that. And I also didn't really have anybody to tell me. I, I feel like I really figured it out on my own. And I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? So yeah, I think like learning later on after diagnosis is inevitable, but it's hard. Um, 
if you feel comfortable, can somebody comment on how it affects mental health? I can. It's a real challenge to have something like inflammatory bowel disease, especially being a minority. I have been sharing this whole perspective for the longest. When you don't see anybody that looks like you, when you walk into the clinic, when you meet the doctor, when you talk with the clinic staff, it makes the journey difficult because I'm getting care, but at the same time, I haven't met anybody who looks like me. I was diagnosed when I was eight, and it wasn't until my teenage years that I met somebody who actually looked like me. And so when I'm trying to explain this disease to my family and my friends, I have a very difficult pill to swallow because they have never experienced anything like IBD before. They don't understand the pain that I'm going through. And it was it got down to the point where when I was diagnosed, I didn't even talk to my mom about certain things because it was like, I know my mom is going to stress. I know she's going to worry about me. I know she's going to be concerned that her son is going through so much. And so I got to the point where I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to go through this process alone. And I became very, very suicidal, not to the point where I actually tried to attempt to end my life, but there were thoughts in my head where I thought about, man, like I just can't take a day of pain day after day. And it just felt like I wasn't being taken serious. Like nobody never heard me. Nobody ever really asked me, Christian, are you sure you're okay? Do you need to sit down with somebody? Do you need to really have a conversation to the point where, you know, my mom did mention it and she did kind of allude to it, but we never really fully went into actually getting me mental health treatment until I became an adult. And it wasn't until last year that I actually sat down with a therapist and just talked through all my issues. And really, she was like, wow, like your story is so unique. A lot of people don't really go through something like this at your age and come out and be able to have such a positive perspective on life. So I believe that mental health and IBD go hand in hand because not a lot of people our ages have something like this. But taking the time to really sit down and speak with somebody makes a whole difference in a whole experience that a patient might have with IBD. So I think this is a very important topic and I don't mean to add like a, another question, but I think that we shouldn't brush over this. I really want to know as a physician, what can I do to help my patients that might be feeling the feelings that you are having? What do you educate us as physicians on what do you think Christian might have helped in your situation? So what I think would have helped is making sure that the clinic is integrated with a staff that really understands the holistic perspective. I don't think it's the burden is on the physician to be the mental therapist. I think that the psychiatrist is supposed to be in the clinic as well as the social worker. You see what I'm saying? All of these parts need to be in the clinic. It's not just one part that needs to be in the clinic. The whole entire system, it's, a, it's an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem. You can't just have water without sunlight. So you have to have all these different resources in the clinic. I know it's a challenge and I'm not saying that every clinic is going to be blessed and fortunate with these opportunities, but it has to work this way. Certain things the doctor understands is because a doctor has studied this, but a certain thing a psychologist understands is because a psychologist actually went through the training process for it. So there has to be a variation in that. That makes sense. And 
uh, having a multidisciplinary clinic system is something that we all aspire to have. If you don't have one, then just letting your patients know that there are some resources, even though they're not in clinic, they are available to you. Okay, so I know one thing a lot of patients struggle with growing up is adherence to their treatment plan, whether that be medication, dietary therapies, etc. How do you promote good adherence and have the discussions around this in clinic? So first and foremost, I don't make them feel bad about it because I always tell them, I know you're trying your best. And I say, okay, let's get to the root of the problem or let's get to the root of why you're unable to take your medication. And really, honestly, it is either timing. It might be that they think that they need to take it 8 a.m. in the morning and they wake up at 11. So they're like, okay, I forgot to take my medicine. I'll take it later. And I always say, once you remember it, just take it. It's better to take it late than not take it at all. And then I try to adjust the time of them taking the medicine. So I say, it's okay. If you don't take it at 8, just take it at 11. If that's the best time to take it, then take it. That's in terms of oral medications. And then also I try to see if there's a financial burden because a lot of times family has a lot of copays. Uh, if they have any social limitations, there's always a reason why they're unable to take their medications because all the patients want to feel better. They do want to take their medications and there's always a reason for that. And I try to kind of get to the reason, talk to them about it and try to help them with ideas and resources about it. For infusions, if they have any limitations in terms of transportation, that might be an issue. Can we find somewhere that is closer to them or can we do something that might help them with that? So in general, first I make it a point to say, I know you're doing your best because they are doing their best and not make them feel bad about not taking their medications. Because I imagine juggling life and needing to be compliant with the medication. But I also make it a point to say, I want to help you with some techniques and methods to remember to take your medication or to get your medication. And I want to know what the obstacles are and help you with overcoming these obstacles. Because my goal is for you to feel better, to function normally, and for inflammatory bowel disease to be a small part of your life, not your whole life. So my goal is for you to be able to do what you want, achieve your goals, and make you feel better to be able to do those. So those are the ways that I approach non-adherence or difficulty in adherence to the medication. I really like that. I think it's really validating how you approach it of recognizing that the patient is trying and recognizing that the patient does want to feel better. I think something else that I've noticed for myself has played into adherence is mental health actually. And I do want to feel better. And I know that medications in my treatment plan are a way for me to get there. But then at the same time, taking medications every day in a way makes me a patient. And I don't want to be a patient. And especially I think that's something I struggled with in high school and college. So it was hard mentally to get over that. I know I need this, but I don't want it because it makes me like this label or such and such. And I also think it got harder as my first line of treatment quit working. I could tell that it was stopping working. And then I had even less motivation to take it because I was like, if it's not doing anything, then why am I taking it? Um, so I think as a patient, being able to be honest and have that discussion with your provider is super important. I want to add to that a little bit because I really went through the same thing with mental health 
But in a bit of a different way, for me, adherence was really difficult because I went through a lot of distrust with my body. And I really was like, I don't want to give this to my body that I cannot trust. My body is not serving me. I don't want to like give this back to it. And also I was like, this isn't working. Same as Fiona said. I was like, I don't want to take something that's not working. And so I think what you said tomorrow about like really finding the cause is so important because there's always a cause. Like every single time I would say, oh, I'm not taking my meds. There's always a cause. Oh, they make me sick or this or that. And it's so easy for providers to just be like, oh, this patient's non-compliant. They don't want to take the medication. They're not going to follow the treatment plan. But like maybe they will if you actually talk to them. So that being said, how do you empower patients to really speak up for themselves and to express dissatisfaction with their IBD treatment on their own and feel okay coming to you with that? Uh, I think it's really important that all patients feel like they have a voice. All kids in clinic feel like they have a voice. And I know, you know, you were diagnosed when you were really young at age five. And obviously a five-year-old may or may not feel ready or okay to speak up, but some five-year-olds are really precocious and they'll just say whatever is on their mind anytime. But I always personally make it a practice in whatever situation to make sure that the bulk of my conversation about somebody's condition or the treatment or procedures that are coming up are directed towards the child and check in with them to see what they are thinking about what I'm describing or talking about. And even if, as is often the case, parents kind of take over and are doing a lot of the talking and asking questions, still pausing and making sure I check in with the child and make sure that they also get a chance. And you know, I've heard lots of your mom's questions. How about you? Do you have questions? What do you want to know about this? What do you think about this? Because it is important, even if they don't feel comfortable right then and there, or don't feel like they have another question, even I think just asking it and making sure that we pause and give them the opportunity, at least sends a signal that as a provider, I'm open to them speaking their mind and asking their questions and that I hope that they're on board and I want them on board with what we're talking about. It's all well and good for mom and dad to be saying, yep, that makes sense. If the child or the key is not okay with how things are sounding, then not great. We're going to have some of those challenges where that family leave and then they're having strife at home over not taking the medicine or not getting ready for a procedure or whatever the situation is. So I think it's really important to give them that time and the space to voice those concerns and just letting them know that in the future, if you go home and you have questions, make sure your mom calls in so you, we can arrange another appointment so that you can talk to our nurses. There's always another chance for you to come in. Certainly for our teenage patients, I always give them some time. Clinic time is always on short supply, but I always try and at least steal off five, 10 minutes with them by themselves because sometimes that's what's required for them to really ask their questions or say what's really on their mind about what we've been talking about, just to give them that space to know that, okay, this is your time. You ask your question, mom and dad aren't in the room. I think that's at least a bit to, to make sure that they know it's okay to speak up. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also always make it a point at the end of the visit that the patient understands the plan and is agreeable with it and they don't have questions about it or they say, well, I've tried this before. It's not going to work. So I always make it a point that at the end I say, okay, do you understand what we're going to do? Do you have any questions about it? Do you have any concerns about it? This is your body. 
we can come up with a plan, but I want you to be comfortable with this because you know what you're feeling. You know your body. You're the one who's going through this. We're outsiders. We can just give our thoughts on how you can feel better, but I want to hear from you. And as a provider, I can say the hardest part is the initial diagnosis. When you sit the patient and family down and say, you have inflammatory bowel disease. And the first questions that we usually get is, am I going to have this forever? Do I just take medicine that goes away? Do I have to take medicine for the rest of my life? And um, I tried to kind of not overwhelm the family, but I want to hear the patient's perspective. I want to hear your perspective on what your thought process is about being diagnosed with a new long-term medical condition. I always make it a point in saying that there's always research out there and we never know five years from now or 10 years from now, what's going to come out there. And I can't say it's forever, but for the meantime, what is your thought process about when you hear IBD, it's a long-term medical condition and how can your provider help you process that? Um, When I first heard those words, I didn't know it struck forward in me as if I had cancer. And it's like, it's not as brutal as cancer is, but at the same time, this is something I'm always going to have to manage and deal with and struggle with. And it was hard to really let that settle in my head. I'm not going to lie. But what made it easier is knowing that I'm going to be okay because I don't have this rare condition that one in a million people have. I have something that a lot of people my age have. I just need to meet the right people. I just need to have the right care team that makes me feel okay. And that's the journey. That's the experience. Yes, it's a long-term disease. Yes, it's a struggle to really understand and grasp it. Just like anything is. Anything that you pick up new skill, new talent that you try to develop. It's a long-term ongoing process. But what makes it amazing is knowing that once you make it through this experience, nothing else is a challenge for me because I know in the long term that I will be okay because I have the right people supporting me, the right people behind me, and that I can continue going on because I know my body. I'm in tune with myself. I'm in tune with what's happening with my body. And I can explain how I feel after a period of time dealing with this and managing this cycle of being in and out of remission and trying to keep the disease under control. So it's disheartening sometimes, but at the same time, it gives a lot of victory. It gives a lot of success. It gives a lot of prestige and, and really courage to hear those words. And I, I I don't know if somebody else has a unique perspective that other patients, you know, Fiona or Ashir, y'all might have a different perspective than I have, but that's my perspective when I hear those words. Okay. Yeah. Totally reminded me when you said it made me think about cancer. I remembered that when I was first diagnosed, someone came up to me and of course said, at least you don't have cancer. Don't say that. Not the right thing. But for me, it's similarly, I mean, I really want my providers to be super candid with me all the time, but I needed to hear this is a journey. IBD is a journey and sometimes it's going to suck a lot and other times it's going to be really exciting and really great and there's a lot of learning to be done, but also there's no timeline for it and everybody has their own timeline for when they learn, when they figure it out, when they get more comfortable with their IBD and rolling with that is so important. It took me a long time to accept 
accept my disease. But once I did, I was so much happier. I was so much happier. My life was so much better. So I think it's important to just go with it. I actually do have a condition that I think that people my age is one in a million. Don't know, but I think it is. I don't know. And even then, I'm like, it's a journey, but we will figure it out. It's going to be messy and it's going to suck, but we are going to figure it out. And I still have a life. It's okay. I think echoing Shira and Christian, there can be a lot of really hard times. A lot of times we feel really discouraged or frustrated, but there's also a lot of wins. There's a lot of overcoming something. You're like, I feel great. I can do this again. But then of course, there's always still like, then there's the next flare. So it's a roller coaster, to be honest. It's a journey. But I think something that it changes you for or like what Christian was saying is you really become in touch with your body and in tune with it and you really learn to appreciate it and appreciate yourself and realize I know myself best and no one can take that from me and I think that's something pretty unique that you gain through this. That's amazing. That's great to hear. And you all mentioned about having the right resources and the right people around you. For our listeners and also for your listeners, can you tell us what resources are available out there for our patients and for people with IBD? Other than your wonderful podcast, are there any other resources that you're familiar with that our patients can benefit from? Okay, there are so many. So I feel like we're going to end up with this really long list. Definitely the pack, just in general, joining the pack and also looking at the resources because we have like lots of toolkits, blog posts, and all these different topics. And that was really nice because I was like, my IBD cannot just be the crappiest, literally the crappiest thing that's ever happened to me. Like it needs to actually be something else too. And so I really needed the pack to turn it into like a learning experience, not just for myself, but for other people as well. And then also social media was a big one for me. Just finding people who also had IBD who were my age or who wanted similar things in my life and just watching them live their life. I was like, oh, okay, my life doesn't actually revolve around my IBD like it feels especially in the beginning it really feels like that but I was like okay I can still make plans with my life I can still go to college I can still do whatever I want all of these people are doing it too and that was really what I needed to see I think another big resource that I relied on was camp. It was really the first time that I met other people my age with IBD and like you don't really talk about IBD at IBD camp you just have an understanding but it like makes you feel okay and I, I guess it like relieves that pressure in social situations so I don't know if you're a pediatric patient or resources to your pediatric patients I would say camp is a great one and there's a lot of different programs that run that whether that's the Crohn's Colitis Foundation serious fun camps just to name a couple and I think there's some other ones too out there but definitely look into that I think the uh one thing that I will say really helped me is support groups, support groups like the PAC, support groups, anything that's done through CCF, the Carlos and Clyde's Foundation. That really exposed my eyes to meeting patients who look like me. That's the first time I actually met another Black patient. And that really allowed me to feel like I can be myself around people who actually understand my condition. Just like camp, just like reaching out to people through social media. All of those opportunities allow me to know, hey, there's somebody else that's dealing with this. And if we just sit down and have a conversation, we can just go back for hours about experience, about things that we've been through and really make a genuine connection. The greatest resource that a patient could ever have is meeting another patient. You know, you can make all these books and all these 
always pamphlets, but until you get connected with somebody else who has really been on the same medication, has really went through the same journey as you, has really experienced some of the same ups and downs as you, it just really just makes the whole experience so much better. I think those are some really great resources and there's definitely that common thread of peer support and just time spent with peers and sharing each other's stories and understanding one another. Christian, Fiona, Shira, really want to thank you for the time spent chatting with us and going through all of these great conversations about all the ways that you guys have experienced your own condition and inflammatory faculties and how you strive to help others with this condition. I really appreciate your time. Do you guys have any other final thoughts or words for our listeners or your listeners? Um, I mean, I feel like I should throw in what I literally tell everybody when they ask me about my IBD. I always say IBD is not a life-ruining disease, okay? Not a life-ending disease. My life is still great. I'm still very happy. IBD did not ruin my life, and it will not ruin yours. I also want to say thank you to Wow Sounds for doing this collaboration and really helping us connect the sort of patient and provider population so that we can better utilize resources on both ends. I think that's been a really special experience for us. So thank you for the time and doing that with us. Yeah, and thank you for being transparent and willing to share your experience with us. I think this is very brave of you and it's going to empower a lot of our patients. I think my final words to somebody living with IBD and those who are listening is that you can really make it through this. You can make it through this and that tough times don't last. Tough people do. That's one of the first kind of IBD shirts that I got. And that quote has always stuck with me because I am strong. I am powerful. I am able to make it through this. So even though right now it might seem like your condition might not be in the best of state, just know that it's not going to always be the way that it is now, that better days are on the horizon. Thank you, everybody. That was great. Tough times don't last. Tough people do. I like that. I like that. I'm going to remember that. I love your affirmations, Christian. I'm going to have to write those down. <laughs> I'm on the mirror, you know. Listen, I need to write it down too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. That was a great episode. We hope everybody enjoyed it as much as we did. We would like to thank Yona, Shira, and Christian for joining us um, and for collaborating with Bow Sounds. Let's do a disclaimer for Impact. Bow Sounds disclaimer is going to be at the end. Okay. okay. Yeah, this is the Impact's disclaimer. We are not in the business of sharing medical advice, but we are in the business of connecting people and sharing our experiences with the hope of helping others. Information shared in this podcast represents the perspectives of the speakers and contributors. It does not constitute medical advice and is not an official recommendation of the Patient Advisory Council or Improve Care Now. So we'll say our disclaimer now. <laughs> if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Bow Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. I'm going to try this in different voices. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, 
On our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GR research and public education programs. As always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to changes with advances in the field. Oh, I did as good as Peter does it. Um, and if you listen to the end, maybe go on Twitter and say that motilitist is actually a word and not just modalist and tag me and Peter on it and say that motilitist is a word. Right, Peter? <laughs> Until next time. Anyway, thanks everybody for joining. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this hour and a half podcast episode and until next time. Bye-bye.